0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's a real pleasure for me to introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Courtney Sherman. Uh, She's the newest member of the hepatology team. Uh, Courtney uh, was trained At UCSF, completed the GI and Liver Fellowship, spent a year at CPMC, and we are very fortunate to recruit her back to join us. And now uh, she is the uh, head of the uh, outreach program, and she has been an absolute delight to work with. And Courtney is going to talk about acute and chronic liver failure. Courtney.
1: Thank you, Dr. Yao. Uh, thank you for having me today. It's, I hope that I will get to meet many of you uh, during this, the next two days. So, I will be talking about acute on chronic liver failure and whether this is a new distinct disease entity. So, let me just set this up here. All right. So we'll start with a case of a 54-year-old woman with compensated hepatitis C cirrhosis who comes to the emergency department with new onset ascites and abdominal pain. On exam, she has a low-grade fever of 100.2, blood pressure of 105 over 60, heart rate of 100, moderate abdominal distension, and diffuse tenderness to palpation. Labs reveal an elevated white count of 12, creatinine of 1.1, bilirubin of 2, INR of 1.5, and a meld sodium of 16. An abdominal ultrasound is notable for moderate ascites, patent vessels, and no biliary ductal dilatation. A diagnostic paracentesis reveals a cell count consistent with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and you promptly start her on antibiotics with ceftriaxone, an albumin infusion with 1.5 grams per kilogram within the first six hours of diagnosis, and 1 gram per kilogram on day three. Unfortunately, over the following days, she has a progressive clinical decline, develops altered mental status with lethargy and new ascites, new oxygen requirement of 2 liters. An updated lab show a white count of 14, creatinine now 2, bilirubin up to 6.2, INR of 1.9, and a meld sodium now 29. You look uh, to see if her SBP is responding and her cell counts are coming down on a repeat diagnostic para. Blood, ascites, and urine cultures show no growth. You do a chest X-ray and does show a new right lower lobe infiltrate, and a diagnosis of nosocomial pneumonia is made. So what's going on with our patient? Is this just a standard acute decompensation in the setting of SBP, or is this acute on chronic liver failure, or ACLF? Is ACLF really a distinct entity, or is it just a progression of acute decompensated cirrhosis? The first step is to define these two entities and understand their differences. The term acute decompensation has been used to characterize ascites, GI bleeding, hepatic encephalopathy, and infections, and the important distinction here is that they do not have organ failure. The term acute on chronic liver failure, or ACLF, has various definitions that we'll address on the next slide, but the key points are that ACLF is associated with rapid deterioration of liver function leading to liver failure, extrahepatic organ failures, and high short-term mortality. So there are multiple definitions for ACLF, with three widely used definitions provided by Apostle, Easel, and the North American Consortium for the Study of End Stage Liver Disease or NACCELD. Within these definitions, there are commonalities, but also significant differences, and I'd like to highlight those. There's no universal agreement on definition. There's variability in precipitating events and underlying etiologies in each of these definitions provided by these societies. For example, in the West, bacterial infections is a common precipitating event, whereas in the East, both hepatitis B and alcoholic hepatitis are considered precipitating events. The definition of organ failures within each of these uh, definitions is variable. And importantly, these definitions have not impacted management. So, to arrive at a universally acceptable definition, the World Gastroenterology Organization has proposed a working definition for ACLF with a goal to narrow down the group of patients in whom data would be collected so that ultimately the syndrome can be better defined. The working definition by WGO is that ACLF is a syndrome in patients with chronic liver disease, with or without previously diagnosed cirrhosis. Characterized by acute hepatic decompensation resulting in liver failure, which is defined as jaundice and prolonged INR, in addition to one or more extra hepatic organ failures associated with increased risk of mortality within a period of 28 days and up to three months from onset. The canonic study, which was a large multi-center perspective observational study of 1,300 patients with cirrhosis who were hospitalized for acute decompensation, which was defined by large ascites, encephalopathy, GI bleed, and or bacterial infection, provided us with the first evidence-based diagnostic criteria that permitted the differentiation between ACLF and, and traditional acute decompensation. I provided this table here, which provides the Chronic Liver Failure Consortium, Organ Failure or CLIF-COF, which provides a scoring system for organ failures in ACLF. As you can see, organ systems that are affected in ACLF include liver, kidney, brain, coagulation, circulation, and lung, and scoring is based on the severity of each organ failure. In the canonic study, Kaplan-Meier plots of probability of survival revealed significantly lower 90-day transplant-free cumulative survival in patients with ACLF, as you can see in the red line, compared to those who had traditional acute decompensation in green. As you can see, these curves separated very early, indicating that great effort should be made to improve patient care during the first day of the syndrome, or ideally before it even occurs. In this study, they divided ACLF patients into grades. The grade of ACLF increased as the number of organ failures increased. With increasing ACLF grade, there was a notable associated increased short-term mortality. In this graph, both 28-day in blue and 90-day in red, mortality increase as the ACLF grade increases. In a study by Naxeld in cirrhotic patients hospitalized with infection, survival was defined by extrahepatic organ failures, and these were defined in these four terms, circulatory failure being defined as shock, brain failure, grade 3 to 4 encephalopathy, renal failure as need for dialysis, respiratory failure as need for mechanical ventilation. With increasing number of extrahepatic organ failures, there was an associated worsened 30-day survival as shown in this graph. The NACCEL definition of ACLF, which has been termed NACCELD-ACLF, is two or more extrahepatic organ failures, and this has been proposed as a simple bedside tool to assess the risk of mortality in hospitalized patients with cirrhosis. A separate multi-center prospectively enrolled cohort of both infected and non-infected hospitalized patients with cirrhosis, including about 2,700 patients, was performed to validate NACCELD-ACLF's ability to predict 30-day survival. As you can see here, overall, if patients met criteria for NAC-celled ACLF, meaning that they had two or more extrahepatic organ failures, they had a 59% 30-day survival, shown in the light gray, compared to 93% in patients who did not meet this criteria. Multivariable modeling revealed that NAC-celled ACLF was the strongest predictor of decreased survival after controlling for admission age, white blood cell count, albumin, MELD, and presence of infection. So what are some of the the precipitating factors for ACLF? Data from the canonic study demonstrated that bacterial infections, GI bleeding, and recent alcohol use were the most commonly identified precipitating factors. While bacterial infections are the most common precipitating factor, we don't really know why some patients get ACLF after infection or whether they get acute decompensation. Other events that can precipitate acute on chronic liver failure are large volume paracentesis without albumin infusion. TIPS, major surgery, and acute hepatitis that could be viral, ischemic, or drug-induced, or acute alcoholic hepatitis. Interestingly, in this study, up to 44% of patients actually developed ACLF without an identifiable precipitating factor. So I'd like to kind of quickly review the clinical manifestations by organ system. So with brain failure, you see hepatic encephalopathy. With cardiac failure, you see a high output state and subclinical myocardial injury and cardiomyocyte suppression. Pulmonary is manifested with acute lung injury and ARDS. Renal complications or acute kidney injury. With regards to liver failure, you see decreased gluconeogenesis, leading to hypoglycemia, decreased lactate clearance, leading to lactic acidosis, decreased ammonia clearance, leading to hyperammonemia, decreased synthetic function, leading to coagulopathy. You can also see bone marrow suppression, SIRS, and sepsis. So what are some of the keys to ACLF management? Early recognition, treatment of the precipitating events, and supportive care for organ failures. We'll quickly review the management of organ failures by system. With regards to respiratory complications, there's currently no evidence to support alternative strategies for management of respiratory failure in ACLF patients compared to critically Ill, uh, to other critically ill patients. Typical recommendation is for a lung protective, strategy, lung protective ventilation strategy using low tidal volumes. Regarding cardiovascular or circulatory disorders, it's important to remember that cirrhotics have a hyperdynamic circulation with high cardiac output and low SVR. Additionally, structural and functional abnormalities grouped under the term cirrhotic cardiomyopathy occur in about 40 to 50% of patients with cirrhosis. Tissue perfusion may become inadequate, requiring hemodynamic support, and norepinephrine is the first line in this case. Regarding brain failure, there are about four things to think about. You want to first confirm that you have encephalopathy and that there isn't a second uh, or some other underlying cause. You provide standard care for airway protection and early transfer to the ICU, management of the precipitating factors, without which brain failure will not improve, and empiric encephalopathy treatment with first-line lactulose. Regarding renal complications, this is particularly important, as renal failure is the most common organ failure in ACLF, with hepatorenal syndrome type 1 as the most severe form. When we compare renal failure in ACLF to acute decompensation, the things that we've noted are le- they are less likely to be volume-responsive, more likely to have structural damage, it's more often to progress to a higher stage, more likely to require renal replacement therapy, and they have a higher mortality. The key is to treat AKI or acute kidney injury early, as a lower pretreatment treatment creatinine is a consistent predictor of response to vasoconstrictor therapy. The combination of albumin and vasoconstrictor, specifically terlipressin or norepinephrine, is the mainstay of hepatorenal syndrome type 1 treatment. Although mitadrin, octreotide, and albumin are inferior to terlipressin plus albumin for HRS type 1, a short course of this combination may be used when terlipressin is not available or the patient is not in the ICU. As trollopressin is not available here, it's important to remember that studies have shown that norepinephrine is as safe and effective as trollopressin in the treatment of hepatorenal syndrome, as shown here. So are there any strategies that we can use to prevent acute on chronic liver failure? So as I showed you, infections are important, and infections are one of the most important precipitants, so their prompt management and prevention is critical. In a European study of 640 patients admitted with either ACLF or acute decompensation who were followed for 28 days, ACLF patients were significantly more likely to present with bacterial infections at diagnosis, 37% compared to 25%, or develop a bacterial infection during follow-up, about 46% compared to 18%. The risk of developing bacterial infections during follow-up directly correlated with ACLF grade, as you can see here, with the rate of infection during follow-up increasing with the increased uh, ACLF grade. This is particularly important as 90-day transplant-free survival was significantly shorter in ACLF patients who had bacterial infections, either either at diagnosis or during follow-up, as you can see by the bottom red and orange solid lines and their survival is lower than patients who had ACLF who did not develop a bacterial infection, and that is in the red hashed line. And those three are all significantly worse than patients who came in with acute decompensation with, uh, with or without infection. Additionally, a 2012 study from the Naxel group showed that development of a second infection independently increased mortality in cirrhotics who came in with infection with an odds ratio of 4.4. So initiation of appropriate antibiotics is key. Several studies have shown that the use of inappropriate antimicrobial coverage is associated with significantly increased risk of mortality. This is illustrated here by another European study of infected cirrhotics with acute decompensation, or ACLF, were found to have increased 28-day mortality if they received inadequate antibiotics, as you can see in the red line, uh, which is the top line. Um, This was also seen in acute decompensation patients as well. Additionally, the delay in the use of appropriate antibiotics has been associated with increased odds of death by 10% for every hour delay. The key here is to start broad-spectrum antibiotics immediately and narrow based on culture data. A study from Naxel evaluating hospitalized cirrhotics with infections identified risk factors for recurrent infections after discharge. This showed that proton pump inhibitor use, or PPIs, is associated with increased risk of subsequent infections with an odds ratio of 2.7. In a recent study that was published, PPI use was also associated with higher 30- and 90-day readmissions independent of comorbidities, medications, MELD, and age. PPIs were found to modulate the microbiota composition, which then does respond to withdrawal of the PPIs. So this should remind us to always review the indication for PPIs in our patients and withdraw PPIs whenever possible. You probably noticed on the other slide that another risk factor was SBP prophylaxis. Um, it's not entirely clear why SBP prophylaxis is associated with infectious outcomes. It's been postulated that the need for SBP prophylaxis rather than the actual medication is a potential driving factor, as these pa- as patients in this study had a higher child score if they were on SBP prophylaxis. Alternatively, the need for SBP prophylaxis may indicate a high risk of bacterial translocation or selection of microbiota that are resistant to the prophylactic agent over time. This does provide us the opportunity to review the appropriate indications for SBP prophylaxis. So primary prophylaxis is indicated in patients who have an ascites total protein less than 1.5 and either impaired renal function, which is defined as creatinine greater than or equal to 1.2, BUN greater than or equal to 25, or sodium less than or equal to 130, or if they have liver failure defined by a child score greater than or equal to 9 and a bilirubin greater than or equal to 3. Secondary prophylaxis is for patients who have already survived an episode of SBP, and important to use uh, antibiotics for seven days in cirrhotics who have a GI bleed. Now what about the role of albumin? Uh, which not only increases intravascular volume but also has anti-inflammatory and vasoconstrictive properties. So the ANSWER study was just published in the Lancet earlier this year, and it was a large multi-center open-label Italian study that was randomized uh, that randomized decompensated cirrhotics to weekly albumin plus standard medical therapy, which included diuretics and as-needed large-volume paracentesis, versus standard medical therapy alone. This demonstrated that overall 18-month survival was significantly higher in the albumin plus standard medical therapy group in red compared to the standard medical therapy group alone, leading to a 38% reduction in the mortality hazard ratio. This 38% reduction in mortality was also associated with significant reduction in large-volume paracentesis and reduction in other complications of ascites, such as refractory ascites, hyponatremia, and hepatorenal syndrome. So this is exciting, but... There was another study that was just published this year in the Journal of Hepatology uh, that is a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in decompensated cirrhotics in which patients were randomized to midodrine plus albumin versus placebo, and there was no significant difference found in probability of developing complications of cirrhosis or one-year mortality. So at this point, the role of albumin in preventing ACLF is not established, but further study is needed to help define its role. What about liver transplant and ACLF? So the status of liver transplant and ACLF remains undefined. We've seen that survival is improved with transplant than without transplant, and that's shown in this uh, by the red line there compared to the green line. Several studies have demonstrated acceptable one-year post-transplant survival rates for ACLF, ranging from 75 to 87%, and this this graph demonstrates acceptable long-term outcomes when comparing ACLF patients to non-ACLF patients. However, it's important to know that patients transplanted for ACLF are shown to have longer ICU stays and longer hospital stays compared to non-ACLF patients. There's also been a high weightless mortality for patients who have ACLF as shown by the dashed line compared to the solid line for non-ACLF patients. And in a multicenter study by Naxel, infections were a major cause of delisting. Given the high weightless mortality for ACLF patients, questions have been raised about organ allocation and prioritization of ACLF patients, as well as whether meld driven criteria are really applicable to these patients with organ failures. The timing of transplant in ACLF is also unclear. Improvement or resolution of organ failure prior to transplant has been associated with significantly better post-transplant outcomes. However, in the context of clinical deterioration, a prompt decision regarding the need for transplant must be made. This figure illustrates the concept of a timing window for transplant in ACLF, suggesting that the ideal time is during clinical improvement or deterioration that does not reach futility limits. So if we go back to our case, you provide proactive management of ACLF by providing appropriate antibiotics for her nosocomial pneumonia, which was her second infection, aggressive management of hepatic encephalopathy, treatment for suspected HRS with midodrine, octreotide, and albumin because she was not in the ICU, and we evaluated and listed her for transplant. After a long admission, she was discharged with a meld-sodium of 25, and she remains listed for transplant. So some of the take-home points for you. The emerging data indicate that ACLF is a distinct entity, but we are still in need of consensus criteria to define and diagnose ACLF, assess severity of organ failures, and start standard management protocols for these patients. Where can we act now? I think infections is a big area um, because it's a major precipitating factor. So when infection is suspected, initiate broad-spectrum antibiotics immediately, then narrow per-culture data. Withdraw unnecessary PPIs, and use SPP prophylaxis appropriately. Thank you. Are there any questions?
0: We can repeat questions. Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll ask the first question. I'm still having, you know, this is a great talk. I'm still having difficulty. Recognizing this to be a distinct entity is more like acute decompensation of greater severity. So can you tell us why it's necessary to define this? It doesn't look like it's impacting management that much.
1: Um, well, I think, I think that that's still the question, um, and in order to have a distinct entity, there needs to be pathogenesis that is distinct from acute decompensation, um, there needs to be separate management that needs to, or there needs to be something different that we need to act on, and I think with, their, uh, with a demonstration of worsened short-term mortality, this, it seems like this is at least a population that we need to intervene on earlier, um, but... We need better definitions of who these patients are. And there have been a lot of studies on pathogenesis, but I eliminated that uh, slide from the talk, but I'm happy to talk about that with anybody afterwards. But these patients with ACLF seem like they are patients who have this incredible inflammatory storm and also parallel immune kind of paralysis. So those might be areas where we can act with future therapies that may be different than the kind of garden variety acute decompensation patient. So I think we're still learning, and hopefully with... More study and more understanding of how to define these patients will know if it really is a true entity. But.
0: It's amazing. This is a very hot topic the last couple of years. And my question, my other question for you is the, the, the PPI. I know that I'm from, you know, an older generation where PPI is routinely used for ulcer prophylaxis in the setting of cirrhosis because they are hypersecretors of acid. So balancing the risk of decompensation or acute. ACLS versus uh, the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease is another kind of dilemma for us, right? Yeah.
1: Um, I think there are more and more studies coming out about the microbiome and how PPIs change that landscape. And it has been shown now in a couple studies that there are uh, worse outcomes of patients who remain on PPIs. Like I mentioned, the increased infections and increased readmissions. But again, uh, kind of still an area where we're still learning. Um, But I think if we can do our best to make sure that patients have a clear indication for PPIs, those are the patients who should stay on on them, and if they don't, then we should try to withdraw.
0: Okay. Um, Dr. Bass. 12, this is a very complex, difficult management problem, uh, but you mentioned something that I thought was quite interesting, and that is this is a cytokine storm situation, uh, which one sees in uh, various other situations, such as CAR-T uh, cell therapy, and uh, for which anti-interleukin antibody therapy has actually been uh, used fairly successfully. And I wonder if there's any uh, thought of using that in this patient population to try and diminish the mass of circulatory problems
1: that they develop. Um, I don't, I, I will admit that I'm not familiar with any uh, of those therapies, but there are uh, one thing that um, has been looked into is GCSF, um, which is a potential um, therapy that has some immuno, immune modulatory effects um, that has been shown to decrease liver dysfunction and survival in these patients. I don't think it's ready for prime time, but it's something, because of this potential different pathogenicity, um, something to target. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the use of albumin in the refractory ascites, um, because after the first paper, the abstract started using it much more liberally. Um, Do you think the difference in in the results of those two studies is due to differences in methodologies, um, and what
0: are your current practices?
1: Um, I... So... I am very intrigued by the possibility that albumin will have kind of more than just the improvement in intravascular volume, but also has other effects, you know, the vasoconstrictive effects and immunomodulatory effects. Um, So I'm encouraged by the first, the answer study, um... But there's always the issue of cost and availability. Um, the second study um, used not only albumin but also um, metadrine um, and did not show a significant benefit. Um, my personal practice is to use albumin when, they're, when patients are having large-volume paracenteses, um, regardless of the volume. Um, but I don't, I'm not otherwise using it for, um, just for outpatients because I think that that... There's just not enough data, for me at least, to say that we uh, know that it provides standard benefit.
0: Oh, uh, last question, um, Mary Pat. Do you think,
1: um, I, I think we're seeing this a lot more now as we're taking care of a lot sicker patients for longer waiting for liver transplant. Do you have any data showing that it's more prevalent in those areas where we are taking care of sicker patients longer as they wait for transplant? Um. You know, I mean, before, if you had a MELDA or were as sick as a MELDA 22, you were getting a liver. And now we take care of patients between the melda 22 to 30 for many months. And maybe that's just uh, ongoing liver failure uh, causing the cytokine storm. I don't know. Well, I think that that um, raises, kind of talks to Dr. Yao's point of like, is this something separate or is this just kind of the natural history and the progression? And I think we still don't really know the answer to that. Um, it's not quite ready for, for prime time, but I think it's important for us to be aware of kind of the high short-term mortality and the uh, need to aggressively manage the organ failures in these patients earlier on. Um, but I will show you this slide if I can. I don't know how to unhide this one. Um, sorry. Um, I think I'm not able to, I can't pull this one up, sorry. Um, but I, I think that that's still a question. I think we're still trying to figure out whether or not this is kind of just the progression of disease and because we're seeing people who are waiting longer um, that that's just kind of the way that things are going. Oh. But this was kind of the the pathogenesis uh, that we... That some studies have demonstrated. So, with bacterial infections or injured hepatic cells from things like acute alcoholic hepatitis or a viral infection, um, they have these really increased cytokine storms um, from bacterial trans- uh, translocation. And in us, in the setting of a chronic inflammatory state or uh, decompensated or compensated cirrhosis or just chronic liver disease, they get even more activity of their immune cells. They get this inflammatory storm, which also uh, this this also leads to immune exhaustion, which is what I was mentioning earlier. And so those two things together um, might suggest that this is its own distinct entity, um, but I think we're just not really sure.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.